Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. Marshall Poe here. I'm the founder of the New Books Network. First of all, I'd like to thank each and every one of you for listening to the network. We're glad you enjoy the interviews we produce. Thanks to your generous patronage, the NBN has grown very large. We've published 4,200 interviews, and we issue 100 new ones every month. You, our listeners, download about 25,000 interviews every day. Yes, that's right. 25,000. Now, here's the rub. As we've grown, our costs have increased. So, in order to continue to do what we do, we need your support. Please consider making a donation to the NBN. We're a nonprofit, so your contribution will be tax deductible. Making a donation is easy to do. Just go to the NBN at newbooksnetwork.com and click the Support the NBN button. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the following interview. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. Today, we have the opportunity to hear from Dr. Shawande Mustakim, Associate Professor of History in the Department of History and the African American Studies Program at Washington University in St. Louis. And today, we'll be hearing from her about her book published by University of Illinois Press in 2016 called Slavery at Sea, Terror, Sex, and Sickness, in the Middle Passage. So welcome to the show, Doctor. How are you? I'm great. How are you? And thank you. It's an honor. Absolutely. Uh, We're doing absolutely very well. Um, And so, you know, thank you for coming on the show, uh, because really your your book is definitely an important book in in trying to really reimagine um, what the Middle Passage was. and, and, And we'll be getting into that uh, into our interview today. And so thank you so much. And so um, as we begin, you know, we, we at the New Books Network um, uh, here. And uh, also my name is Adam McNeil and I'm the host of your channel here today. And so here at the African-American Studies Channel, we really want to talk about, you know, really what was your scholarly trajectory? Um, so if you don't mind really talking to us about um, really your, 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 your trajectory as far as uh, schooling and really how you got to, to your, your particular point right now in, 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 as, a, as a professor. Sure, happy to do so because it's quite the path. And as I'm always telling my students in the book is, I guess, caught on in um, very interesting ways that it's not about the destination, that we may begin to say someone that this was the end goal, but what did they go through and what begins to shape and really make or unmake, you know, as this book is really trying to put forward that argument about, as we think about slavery as this four century institution. And so if someone had told me in the 20th century that in the millennial era, you will one day be talked about for your scholarship, it would have been hard for me to believe because I've always felt there was a vastness of of black history. And so I left Atlanta. I grew up in Atlanta and I had gone to actually the most international high school there, um, Clarkson, and I had gone on to North Carolina and I went to, then it was called Elon College, but now Elon University. And there I had absolutely no clue what I wanted to do. 
And one day I wake up, I'm a communications major because I like to talk. And then eventually I was a business major. And then I, yeah, because I love my accounting teacher. She was the coolest. And then I, my professor said, well, we got to make sure you're different because there can be a thousand business majors, but what makes you different? And he was like, find something. I said, well, I like black people. <laughs> he was like, okay, good. Okay, let's go through the catalog. And so we found African-American history and there was this woman teaching African-American history by the name of Dr. Fessel. And she would end up shaping my life in tremendous ways as well as other amazing people there at that time, um, including Dr. Wilhelmina Boyd, who's now since passed on, but they both saw in me what I was just trying to, hey, okay, I'm here, but what am I doing? And where am I? I'm in this country, North Carolina, what is happening? But yet over time, it would be against helping to manifest what you all are getting now. And so Dr. Fessel saying, I see in you and what, why don't we pursue an independent major? So I was actually the first in, approved independent major at Elon and then the first person to ever graduate. Well, the first person to graduate with a degree in African-American studies. And so it was sort of bringing things together that didn't and having to justify before we would now have this era of, wow, you know, Black history or Black Lives Matter, but trying to find it myself in a place where other people are like, you know, you're not going to make any money studying Black people, right? And this came from all kinds of people of varying levels. And so that said, I went on to Ohio, the Ohio State, and that was also transformational to go there with the earliest sort of birth of Black studies out of political struggle that a lot of people know, but have they don't have the particular on-the-ground narrative. So to go into a department of African and African-American studies or how it all really, because the language and nomenclature is really changing over time, and I've seen this in the decades, but over time, and being there in those two years, I would read there as a Harding. I mean, I'm sorry, I would read Vincent Harding, There's a River, and in and, and my first semester for this Black political movements and organizations class that the most spectacular, amazing fighter for Black history, W, Dr. W, uh, I'm sorry, Dr. William E. Nelson, every day he would say, Mustakam, everything must be about the uplift for Black people. What have you done today? And so imagine, you know, somebody's calling you out, you begin to understand. And so it was all, I was meeting all these people. And what is very interesting is I was among the few that at that time were coming from predominantly white schools. So you would find a lot of, most of the black, because it was a huge contingency of black graduate students, and they were coming from HBCUs. And it really began to give me greater perspective, even beyond being close to North Carolina A&T. So that in going to Columbus, I see all these black people converge. And it's important, again, because... That's where we were told and we would hold each other accountable. Being here is not enough. And so you might show up for a party and then someone would check you like, you need to go home and work on that paper because you know I know. And all of a sudden it would really be a network. And everyone graduated with PhDs mainly. Like somebody left with something. Everybody knew one another. They're in my acknowledgments. <laughs> um, and so anyway, I went on to Michigan State because I got rejected from every PhD program. And I thought, how peculiar. Wow, here it is, National Honor Society at high school. And, you know, you graduate all the way and, you know, it, you move all the way to the top and nobody wants you. And then, so I gave up and I thought that I threw away the application to Michigan State because all I knew was it was too cold. But somehow, I don't remember applying, but I did. And I get this email like, congratulations, you won a fellowship. And I wrote back, I think you have the wrong person. They were like, no, we don't. We have the right person. And so anyway, that would change the course of it. But what is important there is that I was in the Department of History 
But as a trailblazer, Darlene Clark Hine would have this program, the Comparative Black History Program. And in fact, Dr. Fessel from Elon is the reason why I even knew about Dr. Hine and the Comparative Black History Program because it became national news about a Black woman creating this small program so that people could understand Blackness and a study not just within the African-American context, with, but from history, but looking throughout the diaspora, thus within Brazil, thus within the Caribbean, and thus West Africa. And so that's where I come from. And so I always pushed myself pretty hard. And in grad school, and I was taking more comps and stuff, the areas, it was more than African-American studies. That's just not it. It's been that it's part of it, but it's sort of what makes it up. And for me, it was really learning medical history. It was learning race and gender. It was learning about slavery and the historiography and the writing and the politics and the racial politics of slavery. And also looking at African-American studies and its birth and its evolution, which was very small then, that it was still you know, it was still evolving. And one of my comps, I would be required to have to look nationwide, where are the programs, who, what, when, where, and how. So again, to sort of have to understand the landscape and really, like that'll force you to see the timeline that people are unwilling to go beyond 2012. Wow. That was, uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's definitely a, a phenomenal path that you were able to get to. Um, because, you know, as some of our listeners uh, may or may not know, uh, Dr. Hahn pioneered so much when it came to, um, you know, the study of not only black people, but especially uh, the study of black women as well. Um, and, and so definitely to, to hear that you uh, come from that uh, particular uh, really tradition that was, you know, really founded, you know, with the with a particular program, uh, not obviously black studies in general, but, um, you know, the comparative black history program that you came from. Uh, because there, there are some phenomenal professors uh, that also came through that particular program as well. Oh, absolutely. It's endless. Um, Kenetta Perry and Eric Duke and Maris Roman and Kenneth Marshall. The list really does go on and on. Don Curry and Marshonda Smith and it, again, Chantal Verna. Again, you look at my acknowledgments, but it's it really is. It's unprecedented, but it was a quiet sort of you know, you just do your best and then it'll, all the seeds will be laid. And she really was fundamental. And what is so striking is that I've always pushed back in the right ways of being who I am, that when I came in, I was sort of the, and I know it sounds terrible, but the suicide girl, because everyone knew I had written a thesis and come from looking at the middle passage through the prism of suicide, because that's how far, but how deep that Vincent Harding had gone in 1981 as the rest of the world is all really caught in the numbers. He's writing through trade press in 1981 to say there is a river of struggle that starts on slave ships and maybe some of them were heroes. So I would find myself in debates with people where they would say they gave up. They just gave up. You know, I'm sitting there like, no, they did not. What in the world? That I mean, that is really sort of showing the mark of heroism within oneself or this or that. So it would be sort of back and forth. But nonetheless, through Dr. Hine. She would train us and many others, as well as Peter Beatty and as well as Dinah Ramey Berry, Peril Dagbovi, Curtis, many, many, many others that um, would, would, would shape uh, the path and, and all of what would unfold. Um, oh, and Laurent Dubois. But um, uh, so I, I came through Christy, Christy Daniel. I came through an era that we were unaware. We were just there and grateful. And we just knew we were far from home. But... It 
I realized that everyone was interested in women, but it was still growing. So it was sort of gender was taking its next stage after Hine, after White, as they had their students. And so you got to see how schools, Asala became the reunion. That really is the reunion for a lot of people. And it would be like, oh, you going to Asala? Ooh, let's room together. Ooh, let's meet or let's drive together. Let's hang out. So that is sort of the reunion or the Black reunion for some, or just the reunion of this is where blackness matters. So thankfully, 100 years ago, Woodson had the nerve to say, I'm going to professionalize black history that I could write it. But then what happens if I professionalize it to ensure there's a future beyond me and essentially beyond his death and heart attack in 1950? So when I look at who I came through, it is many. It is so far connected that I could say it's deeply in black studies. It's deeply in Women is deeply in medical history. I just happen to be one that remembers the wide landscape. So I would say Mildred D. Taylor, who write, who wrote literature, and for me as a kid to talk about sharecropping, it began to allow me to understand systems. And then that, then later on, I would be teaching the very book my mother would insist that I read with Kindred, so that my students, I would say, just read it, we'll talk about it later. And they're thinking that it just came out. And I said, I'm gonna need you to go look at the bottom line. I'm gonna need you to get offline and go look at when this is created and why is it created and what is it doing for for us? So for me, I always look beyond just history because I come through studies. And so it's many people, it's belittle, I'm sorry, black political science, it's women. Again, the medical history has been huge. And that I I was very shocked because people are like, oh yeah, you did good on slavery, but this medical history stuff is groundbreaking. I thought it was the most boring. So the the evolution has sort of taken its own as new centuries and new excitement and new possibilities loom on the horizon. Absolutely. And uh, with your particular book, um, you know, and, and just if we're getting some people who are coming in a little later, this is uh, Slavery at Sea, Terror, Sex and Sickness in the Middle Passage. And so this particular book is, uh, is as, as I uh, told you offline, um, you know, it's definitely a book that uh, I read <laughs> cover to cover, um, including all your acknowledgments, which uh, absolutely, because uh, just as a shameless plug, you are going to read that those acknowledgments and see a lot of important names. And so you'll, you'll see why this book is outstanding. Um, but also, you know, when, when we, when we look at this particular book, you know, why, the, why this particular book, you know, you, you, you touched on it briefly, uh, but can you tell us why slavery at sea as, as this important study and re reformulation really of, of what the middle passage was? Sure. And and I think about it all the time. Of course, I haven't lived with it and slept with all that sort of stuff. But when I really think about what has made it, again, it's so many people and there's so many histories that all add to it. And there's so many sort of narratives, whether from the cultural lens or maybe auditory or just sort of the study of human behavior. And over time, it was that I was always trying to read as much as I could. And my bibliography, I tried to really show that like, hey, I know, I know that it went where it went and who went and how it changed. But yet it, I never thought it was outstanding. I thought outstanding was going to be that it was done. But yet I was intentional all the way like, well, I understand the politics. I know what I'm writing into. And so for this book to come out in 2016, essentially 120 years from W.E.B. Du Bois, who I would sit next to his book in graduate school and think, wow. 
this is amazing. And if someone said, hey, Slave Red Sea, that's going to be you, I wouldn't have believed it because I believe so much. And wow, look how much has been done. And it will take me forever to get to that level. And I still feel less than what came before. So I have high expectations that are very rare for someone at this age, but yet I pour into the next generation the way it was poured into me. So that said, I think this book, it's not even about a thing. I know this book is important because it is, and it has always pushed to say, everyone needs to be a part of this narrative. Everyone matters, but what is? how do we begin to really feel what they felt? And so in that way, yeah, we can move through the lexicon to say, oh, all right, who and what are they slaves? Are they enslaved, this, that, and the other? And then, of course, publishing will begin to make you say, well, you might have to use slave when you didn't expect to because you're running out of words. But at the same time, what's important is that I would, this is the first book ever to open with specifically the story of two women. And so that no men were present. And I did that on purpose because we've become so reliant on these very armed, rebellious black men. But the, how exciting! But then what about the black women? My gosh, what are they over there waiting on the men? And so it was really like writing in these currents of, I forgot about black women until you showed up. Wow, how nice. And so then when I go in, I'm like, hold on now, a two-year-old girl is not a woman. How dare we? So then I began to look at contemporary understanding so that people would begin to get to, oh, if it was me, I would have rose up and fought back. Like, man, what if they cut your head off? How are you going to fight back? So in that way, I chose, I was very specific. I went to 25 archives across the world. And I did what I knew best. I'm like, I got to go. I got to get as much information. And so what you have in the book is barely uh, 10% of what I gathered. So I've been like, oh, I'll give it to my students. Oh, I'll share this. Oh, yeah, I write an article on this and this, that. But I've been very intentional with what you see above ground with the book. But then on the common ground, I'm writing towards teachers. I'm telling what I have been doing in the t- in, in the classroom, but in the collegiate sec in, in the collegiate, I'm sorry, within the college environment, but more importantly, as and what I would become in spring of 2017, the first African American to ever get tenure. So we're not talking about first woman, first black woman. No, we're talking about first African American. And so in that way, when you look at navigating all these politics. Where, you know, again, the telling of slavery and then the telling of slavery 10 years later versus five years later versus 100 years ago or in another country. So, again, there's a lot that's led to it. And by the end of it, I said, well, let me go out with a bang. Let me find some good TV and really maybe see if I could theorize because I never thought I was smart. I never thought I theorized. I mean, I just did what I've. I was like Steve Biko. I like I, I write what right. I like. <laughs> and uh, but before we get any further, <laughs> congratulations on on your tenure as well. That, as we all know, and in, in light of what's going on in academia, provi- getting that tenure, man, that whew, congratulations, congratulations for sure. Thank you so much. And I feel like I'm just getting started, so it's an honor. Thank you so much. I just want to continue. Absolutely, and uh, providing yourself as. Uh, whether or not intentional or not, as an inspiration to us all, because when you say twenty-five archives, not only you know uh, uh, in you know stateside, but we're talking. You said throughout the world, so that means you have yes, uh, you have a certain depth of understanding that uh, maybe other you know maybe other scholars might not have as far as you know the the 
going to di- so many different archives and what that kind of knowledge will produce for a particular person when they're writing not only about any particular topic, but especially one uh, dealing with uh, 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 the, the Middle Passage. Very much so. And I'm sitting right next to Michelle Rolf Triolio. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. That, that book. Power and the Ooh. Yes. Wow. Power wow. and the Production of History. And when I was ending, I just kept thinking, oh, my gosh, what would he think of this book? Because he's inspired me in all of this. And then yet when I found Miseducation of the Negro, when I was on my way out of college and I almost became like, how can my advisor not tell me about him? And I remember telling her, how come you never took me to this thing called Asala, Associated for the Study of African-American Life and History? And she was like. I had never heard of it or I never, you know, I didn't know sort of the inroads. And yet I realized like it is the operation of duality. So sure, it could be, you know, the souls of black folk and then the operation of these sort of mini narratives of America or the mini nations or the birth of two nations like Thomas Hacker or Andrew Hacker. His book would come out when I was in college to say you have the black, you have the white worlds. But then when you bring those worlds together out in the middle of the ocean where there's no there's no tangible laws to be enforced and you're out in the middle of sea and sea creatures and wooden worlds. It takes on whole new behaviors that we will not be celebrating. So we already are uncomfortable when you have states that are unwilling to apologize for slavery, but more within North America. And yet it's so interesting to see how the world would deal with its own past to slavery and yet where and how the narratives are always framed. So nonetheless, it was really just trying to center the many people. So that would mean, yes, women, but also women, women, girl or girls. So really looking at the categories, looking at boys or male boys, and then looking and really thinking about age. So to uncover all these narratives of murder of sometimes elderly, and then also think about children and think about their place. Because if we always are talking about the best, the prime and the book, and always can get pregnant and always contributing to the birth of this and that and then the other, then we never stop to think about infertility. We never stop to think about disease. So that's where new books that are coming out with Sasha Turner Bryson, as well as Deirdre Cooper Owens, that again, now we're going to see race and its making of so much in so many different directions. If we choose to to go deeper and really to go to the archives. So this is where Marisa Fuentes' book is like foundational. We all knew it. And yet she and I, we never, we just, it's all of us. We're just in it. It's not about how smart you are. It's about dig it up, dig it up. What do you see? And how do you begin to show other people you can do this? And yet you better be right with it. If you're going to be in this trajectory, in this long generational black history, historiography, that is so just not talked about. Absolutely. And, um, and and with this particular book, uh, you, you know, we spoke about this offline, but can you talk to us about um, the companion soundtrack that you have for this particular uh, book as well with, with Slavery at Sea? Because um, in, in preparation for the interview, I, I was listening to it and, and I was I will now not only listen to it as I read your book and other books, but even in, in the gym and others, because it, it really it does something to the soul. And so can you speak about that brief, uh, briefly for us as well? Sure, I'm happy to because it was, you know, to start and and the website for those who are interested, seven, seven, 
777.bandcamp.com. You'll find 37 albums on Bandcamp because I got bold, right? <laughs> when the book was about to come out, I, I, I had the nerve to start a band and to be the only female in an all-male percussion band once we were told to sit down, which was so foreign to me coming from Atlanta where poetry and drumming will be integrated. And so as because of my nerve, it worked out that I just as we began to grow, then that's when the soundtrack, we said, well, why not January 1st? And so when I look at the history, it really matched even 100 years prior is when Asala would have its first professional conversation again. So sort of looking at the national scope leading to it. So it does harken back to the 20th century to say there is the scoring, there's the auditorium framing of the narratives that we create. And yet what happens when a scholar has the nerve and even more importantly for a Black female to drum and to be the only drummer in a band and to trance drum. That means that in seconds, you begin to create beats that in this life, for some, you haven't created before. And so I'm on every track and then I read from it, you know, really sort of putting together some sentences that some people thought were poems. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And so the fact that it's online that would have never been heard of when I was in grad school. And so now to say, hey, yeah, if you heard the book soundtrack or the book, then you got to do the book soundtrack. And I say that because I don't assume that people read anymore. And I assume that maybe the music will keep their attention. So it really was trying to keep that bloody water out there as much as possible so no one could ever ensure that Mustaqim and more importantly, Slavery at Sea would ever, quote, die. Absolutely. And so the sound and, um, that it's produced again oh, yeah, is un, yeah. un, 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 I'm sorry. It was definitely. I was just going to say that it was just. It's unprecedented no. on so many levels. That's why, you know, that I'm I'm grateful that you even asked. <laughs> no, absolutely. Because um, and also to let our listeners know, um, in uh, in the full description uh, for this interview, I'll I'll have uh, I'll have her Bandcamp. Uh, 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 I think you said I think 37. You had you had a okay. large amount of. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, a large amount of different albums, <laughs> right? I, I thought I thought I saw that correctly, and so I just wanted to make sure. Uh, but nevertheless, we'll uh, have that embedded. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and so, getting into the book, um, you know, you 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 you've spoken about black women in in your writing, and so can you speak to us about really the deliberate decisions that you made, and and really packaging this particular book as you uh section it off that you see in the table of contents and so because i think one of the more more interesting parts about this is like we have this kind of iconography of um of 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 what the slave trade was what the middle passage was um so you you like i like i remember uh you know i had a vhs in my house and um you know, uh, and so there was the the movie uh, Amistad with uh, Jaimon Hansu as a as Sinke, right? And so you have this kind of iconography of what the slave trade was, what the Middle Passage was. But as you've spoken about, it's usually male. So can you speak about um, what you get in depth more about uh, particular black women in, in the story and, and such like that? Sure, I'm happy to, because as you were speaking again, I was thinking about the evolution of technology. So to hear you say, I had a VHS, I have many VHS, I have many things that we can't find online anymore. And actually the writing and the teaching of it becomes harder when we 
cut it off or no one's interested. You never know about the people that were trying to continue the conversations. And so that's where it's interesting when I think about, we think there's always going to be that, or this is too much, or we need to get over that, or, oh God, I'm so tired. Because the time will always come that somebody could always say, you know what? You're right. That doesn't ever need to be in a movie. You are so right. Yeah, you should never talk about that in music so we can move on. I'm giving you exactly what you said. So meaning that when you have the new roots coming out, and I was conflicted about it if more only because I come between both generations so that the first one helped me write the book. So that by the time the second one came out, I already had a much deeper understanding of all of it and had higher expectations only because I know more. That is only because I've gone deeper. But yet, what is it that this generation can get? And so I was excited that, okay, all right, now we're getting some engagement. And now more importantly, to see how I'm getting emails from all over the world, from everyday people. And that's what I always want to get to hear, like, this made me feel. I cried. You allowed me to cry. You allowed me to feel. And so if someone, again, looking back between time, it's just so important to think I was in those theaters when Amistad came out. So I was sort of like, oh, yeah, but I fell asleep, you know, because it was a three hour film in college that I was taking this class, Slavery in Americas, as a sophomore and, and writing. I had to write a 20 page paper. How dare we in the 90s to think about that? So, again, that this, this, this goes back to an era of a whole lot. And then. To, it, to look that fast forward, I would be teaching my students about how important that same film is that is still the only film on the slave trade, that all the others really are more about plantation that we say there are too many and we really haven't even hit double digits. Right. And, uh, and, and honestly, that is so true because when you talk about the, uh, uh, you know, the, the you really have people like you're saying, saying that, you know, I'm, I'm getting tired of this. And and I always wonder how many have you actually seen? But, uh, you know, <laughs> that's that's, uh, that, you know, <laughs> that's exactly. a petty question. But uh, but definitely I always wonder about that with folks and uh, the content that they take in. But um, nevertheless. Um, but yeah. So so, you know, the, I think one of the more miraculous parts of your book is that you really dispel certain myths about you know, the, not only particularly the capabilities of, of women on the ship, but also what they literally did, um, to, to resist what what was going on, but also the, the experiences of, 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 of black women on the slave ship. So, so if you could talk about that a little bit as well. Sure. Going back to sort of the emails or thinking about how other people are processing this information. Um, this book would come out in 2016, but yet, in my perfect world, it should have come out earlier, but it came out at the precise moment that it needed to because certain people in, in, in various places across the world needed to actually hold on to what is one of the most powerful articles, if merely because it's the first, or I'm sorry, it's the only history-based, like his, written by a historian, let me just go ahead and say that, um, that it's, it's one of two Black women that have written about the slave trade or Black women's experiences on slave ship, but mine would be the first where we see a historian take that on and to see the overthrow in this article is called She Must Go Overboard and Shall Go Overboard, and it was in Diseased Bodies and the Murder of Spectacle at Sea. A spectacle of murder at sea. And the overthrow of a Black woman left for dead out in the middle of the ocean 
Is it folklore? Is it real? Do we talk about it? Do we laugh about it? Is it talked about in the family? Is it not? And yet I would uncover some documents that would say, well, why don't we try writing it? And so I would write about it, present about it and get so much pushback. And yet I still said, oh, no, this woman's story going to get told. And yet no American Journal would publish it because I would get, oh, that's really nice. That's cute. That's your really cute attempt to the slave trade. And well, you know, we're going to pass on this one. So I kept going. And then the Brit- a British journal saw value in the study of a black woman and her death and said, hey, we're willing to publish it if you, you know, can work with us. And nine months later, essentially the world will hold on to this article for s- five years until 2016, till the book would come out. So that it would take that long until we get even a 30 page article about a black woman. And so in that way, there's intentionality woven all throughout to really say, when we look at gender, it is not just about women, how nice and how important that that is. But more importantly, no woman can ever die from a torn scrotum. And no man can ever die from an abortion or miscarriage. So what point do we begin to really look in and between the bodies, through the bodies, put them all together and begin not to create one singular narrative of suffering, but to say, look at the many aspects. And so it really was the writing and all of the the being in full flow and conversation of who's writing what and being aware of we, the innovation and where it's needed. And so Walter Johnson and really getting us to say, the limits of resistance, how dare he? And yet it was so powerful for me, like, well, okay, then what are runaways? Because to run away on land and in trees and to go hide in the bushes, man, you got it made. Because you go run away off a ship, you going down. And you might go down in somebody's mouth, i.e. a shark. So then you have Marcus Redeker writing uh, about it in the Atlantic studies again about the changing patterns of shark and slave trade. So all that said, I did a whole lot and I really was intentional to say, I know that everyone believes that the slaves had it bad, but what if I begin to use shock therapy and find the most gruesome stories that will begin to say, don't ever forget these people because it's more than one. It doesn't matter if it's two, 200, 2000, you still need to understand the capability, how far the people would go. And more importantly, we begin to think about here's the history and then what do you do with it? That's where I ended saying to the world, I did the work. I became your vessel. I, I, I let people put their foot on my neck and say, you don't belong in these black women. Who cares? Or even more than that, who cares about these disease? Who cares about the importation of someone with missing fingers or toes? So that then this book opens up for the first time, disability and slave trade and medical history. And again, thinking about suicide as its own chapter, because we always conflate it. We always say, give me the ship revolt. I want to know how they wrote up or then we always say well they just jumped overboard and then where we begin to you know freeze the history and freeze the wow they did so wow oh and then again to look at the surgeons the fraudulent tactics to even just get on board the ship to see money and industry and commerce and all of this growing so that when I had the nerve to say the human manufacturing system It was in part because a friend and many friends would comment about, well, this whole transatlantic slave trade, what does that say? And I would would never stop thinking about it, but it would come at the end where I would say, what is this? Okay, it's bad. I got these stories that might make you cry. And you might say, and so what? 
And I said, okay, I got to have a good argument. And that's why I was trained by very good mentors. Like you better be good with your writing. And so we really crafted out to say, okay, how do you say what you say, what you mean, what you say, and you got to be very clear. And then you got to prove yourself. So throughout the entire book. And I remember my father talking about the manufacturing system. And then I called him one day. I said, Hey, now with manufacturing, isn't that sort of like put it together, you know, warehouse transport and delivery. He said, yeah, you got it. I said, okay, I'll talk to you later. And I went and I was like, well, here you go. Boom, boom, boom. Because that's exactly what it is. And I'm like, oh, how crude. Because I need to understand with the economic framework without reducing people's suffering to these cute statistics and data sets to say that people shed blood, they cried, that women were forced to bury their children without any really any real burial, that some people were imported with venereal diseases and some sailors kept going because it was free access to bodies. Could have been men, could have been women, could have been all of that. But let's talk about it. So all in all, this is really, I still find it hard to believe that it's a game changer, but I'm seeing it as more people say, I want more women. I don't care about the men. I'm like, okay, when we start really starting to create new art, then we're on another level because when you start really looking past a lot of the men in the art, you're like, oh, wow, they're sitting there like they're watching Young and the Restless. Huh. Okay, that's not real. <laughs> you got to do better. So. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's, you know, the the that manufacturing process that you spoke about uh, uh, when it came to your father, that that I think was the most, one of the most profound aspects of the book because when we think about you know, you know, other scholars have spoken about kind of the seasoning process uh, uh, from 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 capture to uh, removal to the coast, and and then the the sh- the shipboard aspect, and then you get to your uh, the the you know, and and even you speak about as well how just because they went to a particular place, that didn't necessarily mean that they were uh, uh, bought at the particular slave port that they're going into. Um, which, which I think is also great because then you bring up the disability aspect, uh, which is another area of history that is, is really growing. And I definitely see this book in, 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 in a very important light, speaking to the disability aspect of, uh, of history, especially when it comes to, uh, uh, black people as well. And so, um, definitely that packaging process, I believe was a phenomenal area of, uh, of, of writing that, that you developed. Well, you know, I think it's important here, to be honest with you, for those who almost don't read between the lines or perhaps don't know all of it, that to write about slavery and to really try to understand these centuries and how it is that humans will become such a highly desired product, that when we look at that, it is institutions and it is people that make it up so that while finishing this book, I would bail my father out of jail and then have a full view of institutions and then also taking care of my mother and seeing institutions on way of the medical side as well as having death, 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 death. And then to process and cope with the shock of all of these various things that, oh no, I'm just falling apart. You You begin to think, how can anyone continue to get up after all of these varying aspects of life? And so it was sort of using my life and using what we're unwilling to talk about or really looking at how gifted that I was at, yes, at age 11, that again, there would be the opening up in these vortexes and all these new ways that would allow me to strategically end the book saying that here we see the beginning mass detention of Black people and the policing of people and bodies that we understand in prisons, but 
prisons, not in the way that we know them now and even in its full evolution, all of that sort of stuff, that it begins here. And then what happens when these slave patrols then become everyday citizens become prison guards, that then it becomes a society that relies on social law and order. But then at the end of the day, what do we remember? So it, for me, it's putting together the pieces that we dare try to forget and then try to link it all back in. And I try to do that within the book to say that within this soul gathering, this warehousing, you pick them up, whether they're bathing in the river, whether they're sleeping in the bed, whether they're planting corn, and then you get them to the coast. And then what do you do with them? And then so we, so I was pushing back to say, we've been framing the auction just on, in America. And yet that's a North American context that we still freeze it. So this is where Earl Lewis is right, that we have many sort of threads of the diaspora that all link back to African-Americans. So we link slavery and slave trade and we give it to African-Americans, but yet, and even I'm so grateful that in my winningness, it represents the, nobody wants to claim the water, but yet it is, it's the diaspora, it's the threads, it's the dispersal, it's the movement, it's the adaptation of resiliency in all these various ways that you might've been packaged and transported and broken down into what I want you to, because we can't sell you back. And, you, you know, you're never going to get over slavery, but yet then there's some scholars that believe, oh, they just took rape and stride. And, oh, well, you know, the Middle Passage ended the moment that they were sold. No, sir. No, ma'am. That's not how it goes. It's that the trauma. And so now we're open about trauma and in teaching medical history. I see the void that was there until my book. So now it's like, oh, no, we need to talk about where does this begin? The bodies become the specimen that would then lead to the J. Marion Sims, the Crawford Long, the many, many, many of various regions across in many places and spaces and time within and beyond North America. Absolutely. And and like like I was saying before, when the there's so many different threads and it, and it goes to show um, especially to our listeners here, uh, what the scholarly process is really is about as far as, you know, going to the different archives, because you never know it for one, you never know what you're going to find. And then also when you are into so many different histories, especially when it comes to, uh, the slave trade, that really means you're going to be able to have a different depth and breadth of understanding, uh, you know, what also in part, what the diaspora is. You know, and, and not only was, but really is, because it's still something that, um, you know, is still going on or even in light of recent events at, at the, that the world is now seeing with going on in Libya. Um, you know, people are seeing, you know, a, a different kind of movement that people thought was in the past that of the book that we're talking about. But in, it has some some historical threads in our contemporary moment as well, unfortunately. Of yeah, course. absolutely. And you, you, all of this is always entangled. Again, it's about memory. It's about transmission, how far it goes. Does it just stay on the block? And this community, do we sort of keep these stories here? And so slavery, and more importantly, with the Middle Passage, and then just the many voyages and the many types that could happen it all really depend on the world that's constructed with these ship captains and slave ship sailors and these professionals actually slave ship surgeons that you never know what you're going to get so that they may be feeding them moldy food 
or that all of a sudden we see patterns of understanding food preferences. So everyone, so when we move beyond the conflation of it was just nasty, they didn't get that much. Well, it's because of the slave trade, all of these sort of stereotypes without any depth of understanding. I was really trying to move between the spaces and say, where can I go that other people wouldn't expect, nor would they ask the question. So in moving and navigating these archives very deeply to ask just one simple question, what is the slave ship experience like? And that's one of the hardest questions to answer. But yet by leaving it broad meant whether I'm in London or Liverpool or Jamaica or South Carolina or North Carolina or Rhode Island or Boston or D.C. or even even St. Louis or wherever in Georgia, where all wherever all these places in Charleston and all of it. What are, what are these narratives telling me and what can I do with it? So for me, I actually sort of, and Marisa and I, we talk about a lot about, <clears throat> about the archive because for me, I'm still at, we need foot traffic back to the archive because most times I was the only black person, the only one there. I always would go from like beginning to close and that becomes important because when certain institutions or branded names or any of it that they then are seen or, you know, people rely on Google and think that's where all the information is. And you begin to see what you're missing if you don't look at the bottom line. So really what helped me was to do what historians know best is to do a paper trail. But yet I was trained very much with the rigor that you need to see those documents that you are using, not just that you rely on someone else. And that, for me, I, once I moved past them, so you cut out the middle man, and then that way you get straight, what is this source? And so that took me across England to places that would then show me the preservation and what it looks like in one continent to the next and, you know, just how all of that evolves and then what we remember and what we forget. Absolutely. And and really, that memory question is so important because, you know, when you look at, the, excuse me, <clears throat> when you look at the founders of the nation and when you look at a lot of the people like uh, the Lawrence family in South Carolina or the DeWolf family as well um, in New England, you know, you have many people who were some of the most important slave traders in the United States that were in the North and the South. Um, and, and so seeing how that process and, and really the brutality of the whole system, because I think sometimes people get, People have it as an abstraction that, you know, the or even like the triangular trade, you know, from Europe to Africa, from Africa to the Americas and, and back over that there's like there's a higher there's a cloud vision that's not really on the ground. Um, and so really uh, another reason why I like uh, I enjoy your book so much and why my comparative slavery uh, seminar uh, uh, course loved it so much. And I mentioned that to you uh, a lot of times was because there were so many contours and the other books that we read throughout that semester and all the students at Simmons College's Comparative Slavery course taught by Jessica Parr um, really just love so much because there were so many different contours. And I just also remember briefly, uh, there there were uh, quite a few people who said that there are some areas of the book that they just had to, that they read, but they they didn't do it straight through that there were some times where they did have to uh put the book down and uh as well and just to just just as a word of warning to everyone not a really a warning but just as an acknowledgement excuse me that there are some areas that are very um they're very grim but 
the grim the 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 the, we're really getting into the grime is really where the true history is that people try to shy away from and so uh once again definitely appreciate the work that you've done in in this fantastic book slavery at sea 